It's hard to believe it's Resurrection Day once again, but every Sunday for us is Resurrection Day, isn't it? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we come to your word once again to marvel at the resurrection, and we ask, Lord, that you would energize our souls, that we would be fully under the sway of your spirit, both to believe and to obey what we hear from your word. We believe, Father, that we don't need an ecstatic utterance to hear from God. He has spoken, and he speaks through his word. And so speak to us now. Holy Spirit, come and take control of our hearts and change us. Help us to see Christ and to come away loving Christ. And perhaps some will leave here today having been rescued by Christ. To that end, Lord, we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 16. Why don't we stand together? And uh, we can't get enough of the resurrection story. Um, amazingly, I was at both uh, resurrection sites just a little over a week ago uh, for the first time for me. And it was, it was both discouraging on the, on the idolatry side, there was certainly a lot of that. And yet it was glorious. Um, but we're not here to hear me tell stories. Let's listen to the word of the Lord, Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath, with Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the, stomb, the, tomb, the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was is, who is crucified? He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he was going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out. And fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. I think it's safe to say that we have all heard the resurrection story preached many, many times. In fact, counting today, I think I have preached resurrection messages at least 19 times, but I still find it quite impossible to fully apprehend the glory of it all. I mean, this was the most stupendous event that has ever occurred in human history, and yet no one expected it. No one expected it. Not those closest to Jesus. It's not that they weren't explicitly told what was going to take place, yet when it happened, even they, 
were astonished. It was early Sunday morning, just before the crack of dawn. Several of the women who had been faithful to Jesus throughout the three years of his ministry were completely overcome with grief as they watched Jesus condemned, mocked, beaten within an inch of his life, and finally, horrifically, crucified. The women standing near the cross heard his plea to the Father that he forgive the men who were nailing him to that crucifixion stake. They listened to his agonizing cries as he spoke his final words to his mother and to John, the apostle whom he loved. They saw him. They saw him look into the heavens and cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And finally, after breathing his last, his body went limp upon the cross, and they were all forced to settle into a deep, shadow-filled hopelessness. All hope for them was gone because their hope was misplaced. They thought he would come as a military conqueror. If he did, he failed. There was no hope here. The deed was done, the betrayal complete. The shame and butchery had achieved their intended end. Truly, he would not come down from the cross to prove that he was the Christ. It was over. He was dead. And things would never be the same. As far as they were concerned, everything in that moment changed. The last three, maybe three and a half years of their lives was a waste of time. It wasn't, and Jesus told them that, but they didn't have ears to hear. And they couldn't understand, or would not, That evening, some of the women observed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus working together, risking everything to give Jesus a proper burial. They wrapped him in linen cloths, just as his mother had done when he was a baby in the manger. Only in this case, they smeared the wrappings, the swaddling cloths as it were, they smeared them with nearly a hundred pounds of syrupy mixture of myrrh and aloes to anoint his body as if he were a king. If you weren't a king, you just got thrown into a pit after crucifixion. If you weren't anyone notable, there was no tomb for you. But they treated him like the king. Upon concluding their labor of love just before sundown, the beginning of Sabbat, the Sabbath, the men rolled a large stone in front of the tomb and quietly walked home in time to participate in the Passover meal, which was required of all Jewish men on that night. We shouldn't miss the timing on this. Jesus was the Lamb of God, after all, right? The Lamb whom... All the sacrificial lambs of history had always pointed, as we saw at Lord's Supper a couple of nights ago, they were the shadow, but he was the substance. 
God sent him to be the sacrifice that would bear and pay for the sins of all who would believe. And now at the very hour, this very hour, thousands of Paschal lambs, Passover lambs, were being slaughtered at the temple for the Passover sacrifice. And at the same time, God was sacrificing his son. In the meantime, Matthew 29 tells us the Sanhedrin were standing before Pontius Pilate pleading for a guard of soldiers to protect the tomb from anyone who might want to steal Jesus' body. Their fear was that an empty tomb would deceive the people into believing that he had risen from the dead, and they weren't going to have any of that happen. And so, just as our little funeral party was leaving the tomb, a a battalion of soldiers, a, a guard of Roman soldiers arrived And upon fixing the official Roman seal on the stone in front of the opening of the tomb, the breaking of which was punishable by death, they began standing guard. Jesus' body was safe. Jesus' body was protected. And you got to see the providential hand of God in this. He ordered things in such a way that these wicked men would demand that the evidence be absolutely preserved. And so it was. No one was going to take away this body. And so there they stood for Friday night, all day Saturday, Saturday night. I suspect they were still there Sunday morning. Now, the Sabbath would have lasted from sundown on Friday evening until sundown on Saturday evening, during which time no one would have been permitted to make any more provision for Jesus' body because work was forbidden. They weren't allowed to do anything for that matter except eat what had already been prepared for them on Preparation Day, Friday. But at the crack of dawn, Sunday morning, these few women were already on their way to the tomb. They had not the slightest indication or inclination that anything unusual had happened. Oh, they may have been awakened by the rumbling earthquake that shook Jerusalem that morning when the angel came and sat upon the tomb, tore that stone away. But the women apparently had no suspicion that the shaking ground was a harbinger of something taking place at the tomb. They had no idea. I mean, you can imagine them thinking, what next? Now an earthquake? And notice what they talked about on the way. Here's here's evidence for the fact that they they were clueless. Look at verse 3. And they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And this was a group of women. And they were saying to one another, who will allow us to go in? How are we going to get in to see him and to anoint him? You see, they had absolutely no expectation of resurrection. They fully expected to find the tomb just as they had left it a night, a couple of nights before. Imagine then their utter shock and amazement when they laid eyes on the scene of the resurrection. There on the ground, or perhaps 
running in fear of their lives was the Roman guard, the soldiers, who moments ago had experienced a terrifying encounter with one of the angels of the Lord, maybe two. They came when the earthquake happened. In fact, they were the cause, I presume, of the earthquake. Now, one of those angels was, I imagine, very casually sitting on the stone, which had until recently been covering the entrance to the tomb. He was the one who greeted them as the party of women arrived, Matthew 28. A few minutes later, they discovered another angel sitting inside the tomb, showing them the place where Jesus had been laid in the empty cocoon of perfumed wrappings. By then, it would, would have hardened like a sarcophagus. Clearly, the women did not expect to see any of this. They were shocked. They were frightened. But the angels came with a message, verse 6. Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. And then these glorious words. Say it with me. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, he is in a place. Uh, here is the place where they have laid him. And the women gazed at the scene in utter amazement. In fact, Mark describes the shock with two different words in verse 8. Trembling and astonishment. Trembling describes what was happening to their bodies. They were shaking with fear. And astonishment from ecstasis in the Greek, which means... Uh, Ecstasy. It was indicating their ecstasy of mind. You know, when you're so bombarded with stimuli that you can't even capture it all. It's, it's just so incredible what is before your eyes. They were swept away by the scene before them. God had sent his messengers to tell them, hope is not lost. And it wasn't because there was a backup plan. In fact, despite all of the emotional conclusions to the contrary, God's plan of redemption was moving forward without so much as a hitch. Everything was going as planned. Everything was timed perfectly. It was all coming about just as he said. And, and that's what the angels said in verse 7. At the end of verse 7, he says there, meaning Galilee, you will see him just as he told you. He told you this. Think about it. Do you remember this occasion and that occasion and the other occasion? One of them, by the way, was after the, the transfiguration. They were coming down from the mountain, and the Lord told them, listen, don't tell anybody what you saw up there until after my resurrection. And they went, Okay, what does that mean? This is how it was planned. All of this was planned from before the foundation of the world. He who had not rescued himself from the cross had done something infinitely better. He rescued himself from the grave. And so they fled from the tomb, unable to speak, verse 8, and they ran straight to the disciples to share the good news. What a day this must have been. What a day. What a morning. 
It was a day when, that turned the world upside down. All of redemptive history, in fact, all of history, pivots on the undeniable events of that one blessed morning. And yet, just as many people today think they understand the events that brought about Jesus' death but are ignorant of why he had to die, so I believe millions are familiar with the story of the resurrection. All you have to do is go to Jerusalem to see that. Millions know something of the story of resurrection, but don't understand why he had to rise. Why not just die? I pay for everyone's sin. Why resurrection? And so the question for the morning is, why did Jesus rise from the dead? Or more specifically, why is it that death could not hold him? Of course, the short answer to this is, because it was God's will that he should rise. But why? Why did God deem it necessary for his son not only to die for our sins, but afterwards to rise again from the dead? What was God's part in this? Well, four things. Number one, why did Jesus have to rise? Why could death not hold him? Because Jesus' authority had to be demonstrated. Jesus' power had to be demonstrated. Listen, folks, Jesus made some extraordinary claims during the span of his ministry, but his most audacious claim was that he was more powerful than death. More powerful than death? In John 6, 48 through 51, and, and I'm piecing this together for time's sake, Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. What does that mean? I am more powerful than death. John 11, 25 through 26. When you hear John 11, you should think Jesus raising Lazarus from the tomb. It's just a, a really key place in the book of John. And you remember the story. Uh, Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. When he gets the news, his disciples say, oh, no. And he says, yes, he's sick, but let's not go. Let's not go. But he knew he had power to heal. We're not going to go. Why? Because it needed to be demonstrated that he was completely dead by the time Jesus arrived. And so Jesus, four days later, arrives, and Martha runs out to meet him, and she is put out, to say the least. Lord, if you had been here, my, my brother would not have died. Can you hear that? I mean, you're the only one on the planet who could have done something. Where were you? And Jesus says, he will rise again. And Martha, wanting to be all theological, said, I know that he will rise in the resurrection of the dead. She gets eschatological on him. To which he responds with these words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet will he live. And whoever lives and believes in me right now 
will never die. Never die. What's he saying? I, Jesus, am more powerful than death. Now, it's one thing for an empty boaster to make such a claim, but it's quite another thing to back it up with irrefutable evidence. How do we know that the power of Jesus is greater than the power of death? I mean, nobody survives death. Everybody dies. Did you see that, um, that documentary a few weeks ago on uh, the last Civil War soldier who died? No, you didn't. You know why? Because he's been dead for a long time. They all died. <laughs> they all died. Not a one of them has survived. Everybody dies. But death could not hold Jesus. How do we know that the power of Jesus is greater than the power of death? Well, it was because death could not hold him. Because he rose from the dead. After his resurrection, this was blatantly obvious. But Peter, in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, explains to the gathering crowds by saying these words, among many. But I'll excerpt this part from his sermon. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. In other words, this is irrefutable. Nobody ever denied, not even his enemies denied that Jesus did the miracles. Uh, everybody knew that he did the miracles. His, his most fierce enemies, not once did they deny that what he did was miraculous. By the way, that's not true of most miracle workers today. They'll say they, somebody had a short leg by a quarter of a centimeter and they fixed it. And how are you going to prove that? How do you disprove that? Not with Jesus. He performed many miracles in your midst just as you yourselves know. And nobody said, wait, 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 wait. I don't believe that. Everybody believed it. The Pharisees' answer to, to it was not that he, he's not really doing miracles, but rather that he does them by the power of Satan. This man, so here's his explanation. This man, delivered over by, listen carefully, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end, listen, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. It's the message. Jesus is stronger than death. He's more powerful than death. He's mightier than death. And he proved it temporarily when he raised Lazarus and a couple other people from the grave, but he proved it ultimately here when three days, after three days in the grave, he rose. Why couldn't death keep him in the grave? Well, because Jesus is stronger than death. In fact, not only did Jesus overpower death, this is really interesting, it struck me this, this week as I was studying this again. He not only broke the grip of death, but he then used death to accomplish his saving purposes, the saving purposes of his Father. 
He was not a victim of death. He used death to accomplish the very thing for which he was sent. Death is God's penalty for sin. In Jesus' case, death was God's means of salvation. As Peter would explain it later, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. By his wounds, we are healed. And so the enemies of Christ, both human and spiritual, were determined to kill him, to keep him from fulfilling his mission, not knowing that by killing him, it would secure the fact that his mission was accomplished. That's why it's confusing when at the cross, the enemies of Christ are saying, come down, come down, come down, come down. And you think, surely Satan was behind that. Because even though there is an aspect in which Satan was behind him going to the cross, you just got to wonder, did Satan know? I mean, did his, did his plan shift there at the end? Did he think, hey, wait, maybe it'd be better for him to come down. That would ruin everything. Completely speculative. But the Son of God is demonstrated powerful by conquering death, and for him, it was like child's play. He wasn't overcome by death. He says, no one takes my life, I give it. I have the authority to give my life, to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. And by the way, as I'm laying it down and preparing to take it up, I will use it for my sovereign purposes to achieve salvation for all who would believe. And so the Son of God is powerful, conquering death. It was impossible for him to be held by death's power. And the Apostle John describes it a little differently in Revelation 1-7. He explains that when he met Jesus on the island of Patmos, you remember, he fell at his feet like a dead man. And John says, quote, He, that is Jesus, placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever. Why? Because I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys of death and Hades. Listen, a person cannot be held captive long who owns the keys to the prison. Put me in jail. Go ahead. It's like an episode of Barney Fife. I have the keys. I can come in, I can go out, I can lay my life down, I can take it back again. This is authority. This is the authority of Christ. It's no doubt why he said in Matthew 28, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The reason we know that he had the power to unlock the prison of the grave for us is because he had the power to do it for himself. And that's the kind of power, that's the kind of power every sinner needs. If you're here today and you're just here because it's a holiday and there was free food, don't be embarrassed by that. I got a lot of things because there's free food. <laughs> but know this, doesn't matter why you're here, the Lord brought you here today. And he wants you 
He is after you. He has redeeming purposes in mind. Your only problem is you resist receiving the gift. And it will be yours if, if you just humble yourself and admit that you have need. And not just any old need, but your primary need is right now you live in an unreconciled state with God. And deep in your heart, you know it. But God loves those who live in an unreconciled state with him. He sent his son to prove it. He raised his son to accomplish it. Today could be your day. You say, well, I've prayed the prayer 10,000 times. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's not, not about what you do. It's about what he does. Amen. And so you can ask. You can plead with him. Lord, you're the king. I, I don't accept you. you. You have to accept me. Will you accept me? You know the only thing I have to offer you is my sin. Would you accept me? Would you take my life, do with it whatever you please? Will you take me? Will you make me your own? Death could not hold him because Jesus' power had to be demonstrated. Second, death could not hold him because Jesus' deity had to be vindicated. Not only did Jesus claim to have power over death, he also claimed, one step higher than that, he claimed to be God. John 10, 26 through 30, Jesus says, he gives eternal life to his sheep and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of his hand, that is the Father's hand. He says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What does that mean? We don't really need interpretation on this, do we? In John 8, 56 through 58, Jesus argued with the Pharisees saying, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. I think eternally glad. And so the Jews, his enemies, said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. I mean, he was only 30, maybe 33 at this point. You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Now listen to this very carefully. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. And the text says, therefore, they picked up stones to stone him. Why? Wait, what did he say? Do you feel like that sometimes? Everybody's astonished or everybody's, <gasps> and like you missed the play at the ball game. I mean, you just completely missed it. it. Happened at Shepherd's Conference. There was one session that I didn't go to. And when I got there, everybody was a buzz by it. And I was like, oh, what happened? I missed it. I missed it. And you can read this and just miss it. Before Abraham was, I am. It seems like a non sequitur. They picked up stones to stone him. Wait, wait, what did he say? Liberal theologians try to say Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, 2,100 years of false teaching may have confused them enough to keep them from understanding what the Pharisees of Jesus' day understood with perfect clarity. Here's what happened. You've got to know the history about this uh, to kind of give you a historical context, and you all probably know this. To our modern ears, I am may sound like any, nothing really worthy of note, but 
we need to remember the original phrase. It derives from the time that God came to Moses on the mountain and said, Moses, you are going to be my redeemer, not the Messiah, but you are going to rescue my people from Egypt. And um, they have this discussion. It's the place where uh, the Lord says to him, take off your shoes for this is holy ground. And Moses starts coming up with rebuttal. Lord, I'm not the right guy. You've got the wrong person. I mean, I murdered somebody in Egypt. I get in big trouble if I go back there. Uh, that's not what he said, but I, I think he was probably thinking that I would have been. But he did say this. Lord, come on. When I go back and I go to the elders of Israel who are slaves in Egypt, and I say to him, God has sent me to deliver you from Egypt. Look, they're going to ask a question. The question is, who is it? Who sent you? So what do I say? What do I say? Exodus 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, this is what you should say to them. I am who I am. Say to this, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You know what Jesus is saying? the voice that came out of that burning bush, it was me. It was me. They picked up stones to stone him. <laughs> You're calling yourself God. Notice he didn't say I was. Notice he didn't say I will be. He said, I am. In three letters of the alphabet, God reveals his name. He is the eternal one. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so when Jesus says to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am, there is no ambiguity about what he is proposing. I am the eternal one. Look around you. See the world? I created it. See that cloud? See the rain? See the rain stop? Me, me, and me. Bow and worship me. Bow and worship you? We're going to kill you. In fact, at the end of his life, this was the final charge that the Jewish court laid against him which led to his crucifixion and death in Matthew 14, 61, the frustrated Sanhedrin, they kept trying to find two witnesses who would say the same thing, make the same charge against him, and they couldn't find anyone. They even tried hiring guys, and they still couldn't get it right. And then finally, in their frustration, the high priest said, tell us plainly, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? In other words, are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, listen to these words carefully, I am bold. I mean, it would be bold for me to say it. For Jesus, it was just true. And that's not even where he ended. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds in heaven. Is that clear? 
And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? And they all stood up and condemned him. When Jesus called himself, I am, it was a clear claim to deity. But how can anyone be sure it was true? Paul answers that question in Romans 1, verse 4, where he explains that Jesus, quote, was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. That's how we know. How do we know that Jesus is God? Because the resurrection declares him to be true. And so death couldn't hold him because his power had to be demonstrated and his deity had to be vindicated And then third, death couldn't hold him because Jesus' glory had to be celebrated. I think we spend too much time thinking about the passion of the Christ in terms of how it benefits us. And it does, and and that brings glory to God. But you know what? In, In every place in Scripture, the focus should be primarily on God. What does this text say about God? And that's certainly true of the passion. We should think, first of all, about what was up with God. What is he thinking? What is he doing? What are his divine and providential purposes? When we think about Jesus or, or the Father doing things out of love for us, and we think about it so much, though it's not untrue, it's certainly true, and it's gloriously true. But if all we do is focus on that, And we miss the fact that God's greatest goal in life and death is that his son might be glorified. I mean, why did he create the world to glorify the son? Why did he make a garden to glorify the son? Why did he allow sin in the world? You ready? To glorify the son. Why did he send Jesus in his humiliation Step down from his throne, sovereign rule over the cosmos, became a baby to magnify the glory of Jesus. Why did he die on the cross? Why did he live 33 years? It was God's plan to glorify the Son. And Hebrews alludes to it at the end of the book of Hebrews where it talks about the eternal covenant. God, before he created the world, devised a plan by which he would glorify his son and it would involve the creation of all that is and it would involve the creation of man and it would involve the allowance of sin into the heart of man and it would allow for and plan for and determine that there would be need for God himself to die on the cross to save sinners. It included the resurrection. It included his Um, his session, as they call it, and he returned back to the throne and took his seat upon the throne. All of it is for the glory of Christ. Everything God did for us to bring about our salvation is ultimately aimed at exalting the glory of Jesus. In John 13, 31 and 32, when Judas had left the upper room that last night to betray Jesus to his enemies, Jesus immediately said, okay, so Judas gets up from the table. He's going out to do the deed. And Jesus immediately says to the disciples who were left, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorifying him. 
the disciples had to have another one of those moments. Did we blink? Did we miss something? What is he talking about? And yet John recorded it. If God is glorified in him, he says, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Moments later, when Jesus was leading his men to the Garden of Gethsemane for prayer before his arrest, Jesus stops in the darkness on the Mount of Olives. And he looks up into heaven and he prays these words, Father, the hour has come. What hour? The hour that's been planned since before the creation of the world. It's here. It's time. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Why? So that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory. Listen, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is what salvation is about. It's not primarily about you. It's primarily about Christ. And we should think of the glory of Christ in two ways. First, there is his intrinsic glory. He is glorious in his person. On the Mount of Transfiguration, his disciples got a glimpse of this intrinsic glory when Jesus suddenly appeared to them in a way that can only be described as a blinding light. Well, maybe not the only way to describe it, but talked about his clothes shining like lightning. And that kind of glory leads to another, namely, the worship and honor by which people rightly ascribe to him the highest rank of any being in the cosmos. He is intrinsically glorious, and his people ascribe glory to him by recognizing the glory that he is and declaring it to him and to one another. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 29, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And I would say to you, this is nothing but celebration. Nothing less than celebration of the glory of God. This is the kind of glory that we get a glimpse of in the book of Revelation. When Jesus rose from the dead and 40 days later ascended back into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, all heaven no doubt rejoiced. They rejoiced at his birth on the earth. You know they had to rejoice when he returned. Even more so. I think it must have been a celebration that previewed the coming great day of exaltation that John foresaw in John chapter 5, and here's how John describes it. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. It's amazing, in Isaiah chapter 6, there are two, two, declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we know that, that the Lord seated upon the throne was none other than Christ. But here, it's, it's more than that. Many angels around the throne and living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was, listen to this, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, not just two, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb. Okay, this is how you ascribe glory to his name. 
Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and under the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. That's why death could not hold him. God had determined that his son, who came to earth in utter humiliation, would be restored to his rightful place of glorification as king over all. And so death could not hold him because his power had to be demonstrated, his deity had to be vindicated, his glory had to be celebrated, and finally, God's wrath had to be propitiated. Let's face it. Friends, if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, what gives us the audacity to say that our sins are forgiven? If Jesus didn't rise again, proving that he was qualified to satisfy the wrath of God in our place, upon what basis do we say that we have peace with God? It's not that the resurrection brought propitiation. Rather, it was proof It was proof that the Father accepted the sacrifice of the great high priest. Namely, he sacrificed himself. The great high priest, Jesus Christ, was also the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Listen, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is eternal separation from God. The wages of sin is judgment And and as frightening as this is, if all of that is true, it should frighten us because we are all sinners. And we're very comfortable sinners living in a very comfortable world. And we don't feel the weight of our sin like we should. And we don't sense that there is wrath to come. And everything around us is telling us it's not true, it's not true, it's not true. Don't believe that. But Jesus did rise from the dead. And hundreds of people were witnesses of the fact that he rose again from the dead. And what I'm suggesting to you is that this was proof that his propitiatory sacrifice was accepted. You go to the temple and you take your little lamb with you and you go to sacrifice it and the priest looks it over and says, wait, 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 got a spot here, got a spot, unacceptable. Try again. You go go back to the sheep. Buy another one, come, oh, unacceptable. And and you think you can bring all of your works of righteousness as you perceive them to be to God as, as your sacrifice to get you into heaven? And he looks at it and blemishes all over the place, unacceptable. But Jesus, Jesus lays himself on the altar for you. He comes to the great high priest who is himself, And Jesus, the great high priest, looks at the sacrifice. The Father looks at the sacrifice and says, acceptable. And how do we know it? Because it was the Father who raised him from the dead. Jesus rose again from the dead and hundreds of people saw him. They were witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us they were at 1.500 at one time. 
Some, however, even in the first century were suggesting that there's no such thing as resurrection. When a person dies, it's over. The body feeds the worms and pushes up daisies. But here's what Paul says. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You understand this? There were people in Paul's day and in Jesus' day, even the Sadducees, I won't make that joke, who said there is no resurrection. I mean, these were religious elite who were unbelievers, hardly believed in God, didn't believe in angels, clearly. And they were saying there is no resurrection. They kept coming to him, remember, with, with scenarios. Oh, if the resurrection is real, then what about this guy who had seven, or this woman who had seven husbands? Whose husband is, is, she, is he, when he when he gets to the resurrection? They thought he had him trapped. There's obviously no resurrection. And Paul says, listen, you fools. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God that he raised Christ from the dead whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And listen carefully. Here's his conclusion. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith it's not a paraphrase, it's the exact words. Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sin. You say, wait a minute, but the resurrection didn't pay for sin. No, but the resurrection demonstrates that the sin was paid for. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of all who are asleep. For since by one man came death, that's by Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead, that's Jesus. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Oh, beloved, you hear the message? Everything hinges on the resurrection. Jesus died to satisfy the holy and righteous wrath of God against sinners. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore, the Son of God had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation means to offer a gift that satisfies the king who is angry. Here's the thing. You say, well, all religions do that. All religions offer a sacrifice. Yes, one big difference between the sacrifice that God accepts and the sacrifices that are made 10,000 times around the world by the pagan religions, it is this. In all of their cases, they are offering their own ritual sacrifices that are unacceptable. In God's case... He offers himself the sacrifice of his son. In 1 John 4.10, in this is love. So this isn't just, this isn't just justification. 
This isn't merely God marking off the record book and saying, you who have, have this long record of debt and sin, it is expunged by the blood of Jesus. It's not just about paperwork. It goes beyond that. As we talked about in men's ministry this week, it moves from, from justification to adoption. You are declared righteous, but it doesn't stop there. God then takes you and brings you into his family. And John said, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And by the way, you remember the story of the publican or the, yeah, the, the, uh, publican or the Pharisee and the tax collector, sometimes called publican, I think. They were in the temple praying, and the Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. I mean, I fast all the time. I give a tenth. I, I do all of this. And, and the tax collector didn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he prays, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You know, in the original language, what he says, God. Okay, so he's in the temple. These lambs are being slain. And the man prays this, God, be propitiated toward me. Turn your wrath from me based on the sacrifices that are being made right over there. God, be propitiated toward me, the sinner. And the lambs that were being offered, they were insufficient for the cleansing of sin. But Jesus was the lamb. On the cross, listen, on the cross, on the cross redeeming love and holy justice joined hands for our salvation. The death of Jesus satisfied the wrath of God in our place. And the Father raised him from the dead to announce that Christ, his sacrifice was acceptable and it was sufficient to pay for man's debt. The resurrection is proof positive that God the Father accepted the payment that Jesus made on behalf of sinners when he offered his own life in our place. That's propitiation. And on the cross, Jesus quenched the righteous wrath of God toward sinners that all who believe might be saved. All might be saved who believe to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then the final analysis, the equation goes like this. No resurrection, no salvation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to man's salvation. If he was not raised, we will not be raised. The resurrection of Jesus is foundational to the gospel this is why Paul goes on and, and makes his appeal like this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can't have the gospel without the resurrection. You can't have a gospel without resurrection. Why is it that death could not hold him? Because it was the sovereign intention of the Father that man's salvation would come in such a way that Jesus' power would be demonstrated, his deity would be vindicated, his glory would be celebrated, and that God's wrath would be shown to be propitiated. 
I just want to speak to you again who, if you don't know the Lord, you've been fooling around with religion, perhaps, if you don't know him. You might ask yourself, okay, what's the impact here? Um, where's this going? I mean, where do I go? You know, why, why is this for me? What's the message to me? And the message is the one that we read earlier at the beginning of the service. It comes from the end of the book of John. When John writes this, there are many other things that, miracles that Jesus did that are not written in this book, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may find life in his name. Jesus is more powerful than death. And in him, you will find, if you come, you will find in him eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Resurrection Sunday. It's always a delight to come and minister your word to your people. But on Resurrection Sunday, it's glorious. So we praise you and we give you thanks. We would not have known these things if you had not revealed them in your book. And so we praise you for giving us the truth and for all of the verifying evidence that comes with it. Oh, Father, may we be found faithful to share this gospel with everyone that we come in contact with who needs to hear it. And may we, by your mercy, assume that everyone needs to hear it. And Father, I pray that you would save some by it. Thank you for the privilege of being your children. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. Praise your name. We thank you in Jesus' name.